Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find uh, these verses on page 947. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. For the last several weeks, we have been thinking about the mission of the church, about the the church's call to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And we've been thinking about it from the perspective of discipleship. What is a disciple? What is is a mature disciple? If that's our mission, if that's what we're we're trying to do, what are the defining marks that tell us that, that we have actually begun to accomplish that mission? In our study to this point, we have seen that the initial mark of discipleship is repentance. It is a response of repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ that moves us out of darkness into light, that that makes us a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we have seen that that response of repentance necessarily leads us into worship as we begin to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His light. Moreover, we've seen that that new response of worship will always overflow in a life of new obedience as we offer ourselves to Him, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. And we've seen that the defining characteristics of that new obedience are a self-denying love for our neighbor, whether that be in our families or whether that be amongst our friends or whether that be with our neighbors. When we walk in obedience to God, we walk in love for neighbor that puts their interests even before our own. This morning, I want us to draw this whole series to a conclusion by asking how. How is this accomplished? How do we become the sorts of disciples that we have been describing? How do we become repentant sinners who worship God with all our hearts and endeavor after a new obedience that is marked by a self-denying love for our neighbor? I believe that we find our answer, at least the beginning of our answer, here in Romans chapter 12, specifically in verse 2. So let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words, would now be at work in our midst as we hear them read and preached. That he would open our minds and our hearts to receive them. That he would cause them to to put down deep roots and that he would cause them to bring forth abundant fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. This is the very Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good 
and acceptable and perfect. That is the reading of God's Word. You'll notice that Paul begins this somewhat familiar exhortation, this this command that we have probably heard many times before. He he begins, or he, he introduces it with that little word, therefore. We are to offer our bodies as as living sacrifices because of, or in light of, or on the basis of, all that Paul has been writing in this letter up to this point. It is because of what Paul has written that he now commands us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And so we must begin this morning by asking what it is that Paul has written in the first 11 chapters of this letter. Now you may know that this letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, is in some sense his, his most systematic and complete presentation of the gospel. This is, this is his most complete presentation of the gospel that he tells us that he had been set aside to preach. And the reason for the, uh, this particular structure of Paul's letter to the Romans is not hard to discern. Many of Paul's letters, many of his other letters, are responses to to questions or to situations that had arisen in churches that he had planted, that he had preached at, that he had been a part of. But his letter to the Romans is different. Paul had never been to the church in Rome. It was not a church that he had planted. It was not a church that he had visited. He tells us that he had many times made plans to go to the church in Rome. But to this point in his ministry, he had never been there. He wanted to go. He he wanted to preach in Rome because in some sense that would have been the fulfillment of his calling. Remember, Paul had been called to be the instrument of the gospel to the Gentiles, and Rome was the center of the Gentile world. And so Paul longed to, to make it to Rome, he tells us, that he might preach the gospel there, that he might see a harvest of the gospel even there in Rome. But as I said, to this point, he had not been able to go. And so therefore, instead of going himself to preach the gospel, he sends his sermon in written form. That's what the letter of Romans is. In some sense, it is, uh, it is a synopsis of the sermon that he wished he could preach in Rome. And for that reason, it is a, a fuller, a more complete, a more systematic presentation of his gospel. Surprisingly, this presentation of the gospel begins with bad news. This this presentation of the good news actually begins with the wrath of God. It, It begins by reminding the Romans that all men are by nature objects of God's wrath. That God's wrath is against all men because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this includes not only the pagans, who who everybody recognized were under the wrath of God, but this includes even the the religious Jews, who despite their knowledge of God's law and besides their their confessions of of faith in Him as the one true God, nevertheless do the very same things. So Paul writes in the early early chapters of this letter that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all men together are under a curse. But of course, he doesn't simply tell us the bad news. He goes on to tell us the the good news, the good news of the righteousness that is now revealed in Jesus Christ. 
He tells us that while all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous through Jesus Christ, the the one whom God put forward as the propitiation, that is, as the the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, the, the sacrifice that brings peace and reconciliation. And so now there is a righteousness that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And he tells us in chapter 4 that this righteousness is received not by works. We We don't earn it. It is not wages paid to the devout or to the the, the serious, but rather it is the gift of God's grace. Even as Abraham himself was justified by faith, declared righteous in God's sight because he believed God, so too we will be justified. We will be declared right in the sight of God if we believe on Him who was delivered up for our sins and raised again for our justification. And because this justification is ours by faith alone, Paul goes on to say that all those who have been justified, all those who have believed, now have peace with God. They have been set free from the curse that was brought upon creation by the first Adam through the righteousness of the second Adam. This is Paul's point. This is the the message that he proclaims. And he goes on in chapter 6 through 8 to explain how this gospel of of free grace leads not to debauchery, as some might expect, but rather it leads to a new righteousness. Because the Holy Spirit does in us what the law, weakened by the flesh, was never able to do. So long as we look to the law to reconcile us to God, we will be nothing but lawbreakers. But when we surrender to the law and acknowledge that we cannot keep it and look to Christ alone for our salvation, then the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to do in us what we were never able to do ourselves. It begins to conform us to the image of Christ that is so beautifully portrayed in the law. And of course, this ends with a grand assurance. If if it is God who is at work in us to save us, then we can be confident that we will be saved. For the God who works in us will not fail to accomplish His purposes. And there is no power in all creation that can thwart the intention of His love for us that we would be conformed to the image of the glory of Christ. This is the the climax of chapter 8. But then this brings us to chapters 9 through 11. The chapters immediately before Chapter 12 and Paul's great command. And many people have have found these chapters hard to understand and they have sometimes just sort of dismissed them as as a parenthesis. But But I want you to see that these chapters actually address a vital question. Paul has, has just told us in the climax of chapter 8 that there is nothing in all creation, there is no power that can separate us from the love of God. But this directly relates to the, the promises that God made in the Old Testament. If we are to have assurance that God will not fail to bring to completion the good work that He has begun in us, if, if our confidence rests in His faithfulness, then how are we to understand His faithfulness to Old Testament Israel? Because it seems that many of them are not saved. 
It seems that the, the gospel has, has failed to, to bring forth fruit among them. And so what assurance do we have that God will not abandon us if he abandoned Old Testament Israel? And so in response to this question, Paul assures us that he has not abandoned his people. That he has always been faithful to his promise. That, that he has always been unfolding his plan. That all Israel, all of Abraham's ethnic descendants were, were never Israel. But rather, Israel was always those who believed. Those who, who received and rested upon the Messiah. And even now, that promise goes forth to the Gentiles. And, and through the Gentiles will, will stir up those among Israel who are our elect, that they too might believe and be saved. This is the wonder of God's plan, that He intends to save for Himself all those whom He has called His own. That not one who has been given to the Son will be lost. This is the Gospel, that we can trust Him, that we can rest fully confident in, in the work that He is doing in us. And it is that confidence that brings us to the charge at the, the beginning of chapter 12. If this gospel is true, and if God will be faithful to it till the end, then the only reasonable response is for us to offer ourselves to Him as living sacrifices. We are to offer our bodies to Him as, as whole burnt offerings. An image that, that recalls the, the full devotion that we are to have to God. We are to entrust ourselves fully and without reservation, without qualification to Him. We actually looked at this, this text earlier in our series as we considered that, that response of worship that we are to have to God. This is the life of, of worship. That a, that a disciple lives. It is a, a life where all that we do is done to the glory of God. That all we do is done in His name. But the question is, how? How do we become the sort of people who offer ourselves as whole burnt offerings to the Lord? How do we respond to this gospel with, with such repentance and faith? It is, it is not natural. It is not our, our natural inclination. Rather, our natural inclination is what Paul described all the way back in chapter 1 when he said that we suppress the truth because of unrighteousness. There is in us this, this desire for unrighteousness, this, this love of, of darkness, this sinful passion. And in order that that passion might be satisfied, we will reject the, the clear truth. We will suppress it. In unrighteousness, Paul says. And so how do, do sinners like us become disciples who offer themselves to God as, as whole burnt offerings? This is the question that Paul is answering in verse 2. Look again with me at what Paul writes. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice that first phrase. He, he says, do not be conformed to this world. The, the sense of, of Paul's language is that we are to no longer be conformed because we are 
by nature conform. By nature, we are as the world is. By, by, by nature, we, we seek our own way. We, we advance our own interests. We, we satisfy our own passions. And Paul is saying that we must no longer be conformed. The, the first step towards offering ourselves as, as living sacrifices is to cease to conform to the world. Before coming to Christ, we were conformed, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were like the rest of mankind. We were shaped by the the passions of our former ignorance. We did not honor God as God or, or give Him thanks, but like fools, we pretended that God was not there and lived as if we were free to do what was right in our own eyes. But when we believed on Jesus, We were set free from the dominion of our sinful passions. In an instant, we became servants of the one true and living God raised to life in the Son. We were no longer the slaves of sin. However, the the transformation of our daily walk was not immediate. Rather, the the conversion from living as a slave to to living as a son is a a process that takes a lifetime. And Paul is saying that we must press on in that conversion. We must continue to to be transformed. We must continue to to put off conformity to the world. But, But how does that happen? How do we experience this this transformation. It's what Paul tells us next. He says, be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. There it is. How, How are we transformed? How do we cease to be conformed? How do we cease to to live in conformity to the passions of our former ignorance? We are transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of our mind. As our minds are transformed, our lives are changed. Now we must be careful at this point because we live in an information age and it's easy for us to think that the renewal of the mind here refers only to, to head knowledge, only to being able to, to, to pass a Bible exam or a, or a theology exam. And that's not at all what Paul has in mind. For Paul, the mind includes both the the head and the heart. For for a first century Jew, there there would have been no division. It would have been inconceivable to, to separate the two. Yes, there is a rational component, of course. We are not anti intellectual. We are not against propositional truth. There are truths to be known and understood and and we study hard to to understand them. But the 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 renewal that Paul has in mind is not merely rational. It is not merely learning a a few new propositions or even many new propositions. We are not merely intellectuals, but rather the mind, as Paul understands it, is rational, but it is also emotional and it it is volitional. It is our entire inner man, to use the language that Paul uses elsewhere. And so the renewal of the mind includes what we might call heart knowledge today. It's, it's knowledge that, yes, we, we grasp with our minds, with our, with our intellect, but, but, a, but a knowledge that puts down roots into our hearts and then brings forth fruit in our 
lives. This is true biblical knowledge. This is the renewal of the mind that, that Paul has, uh, that Paul is, is talking about. A, a knowledge rooted in the heart that brings forth fruit in the life. A knowledge that, that shapes our emotions, that, that determines what we love, and then directs our wills, determines what we do. But this still leaves us with a question. Here, Paul tells us clearly that we are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. But how are our minds to be renewed? What is it that, that renews our minds. If this is what we are to do, if this is how our lives will be transformed, if this is how we will become disciples, we must know how are our minds renewed. And I think Paul gives us a clear answer to that in one of his other letters. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Page 996, if you're using the Pew Bibles. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul makes what is again a, a familiar statement. At the end of chapter 3, verse 16, he writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here, using slightly different language, Paul is, is talking about the ex exact same thing that he's talking about in Romans chapter 12. He is, he is talking about how the man of God is renewed, how he is transformed, how he becomes equipped for the good works which God has prepared that he should walk in them. And he, and he tells us how that happens. He says that this transformation happens through the ministry of the Word of God. Notice what he says. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. Think about what that, what that language means. We, we sometimes speak about the inspiration of Scripture, and that's, that's helpful language, but it can be somewhat misleading because we get the impression that, that, that God sort of inspired people then to write their own things. When, when someone is inspired and then writes a song, the song is still their song. It is their reaction. And that's the way some people think about Scripture, as if it were a man's response to God's revelation. But that's not the way that Paul speaks about Scripture. Scripture is not merely man's response to God's revelation, but Scripture actually is God's revelation. It is words breathed out, not merely inspired, but expired. Breathed out by God. These are the very words of God. Yes, they were written down by chosen men, as some of the children told me in our uh, membership interviews yesterday. You know, yes, these are, these are words that were written down by, by men, but they are the very words of God. And because they are the very words of God, they are words that have power. Think about God's words as we see them in the very opening chapters of the, the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and how did He do it? By speaking, let there be light, and there was light. When God spoke, things that did not exist came into being. The universe and all that there is was created by the mere word of His 
power. And his word today still has that power. In fact, Paul uses that that very image to, to speak about what goes on in the heart of a sinner. God says, let there be light, and there is light, not in the universe, but in the dark heart of one who was previously hostile towards God. He is converted. He is renewed. He is transformed. The word of God has power. It begins to to create new life where previously there was only death. In fact, Paul breaks this down into several components. Notice how he describes it. What is it that the Word does? He says, well, first of all, the Word teaches. It it communicates knowledge. This is is back to that idea of propositional truth. There There is truth to be known. We are not simply here to have an experience. We are are here to devote ourselves to the Word of God. We are here to grasp with our minds the things that God says are true. There is teaching to be done, teaching both related to faith and practice, to what we are to believe and to what we are to do. We we receive the Word of God as teaching, and it is powerful to do that. It is is powerful to give us new knowledge, But, but not only does it teach us, it also reproofs us, it, it, it chides us, it disciplines us, it, it points out to us when our lives are in error, when they are out of accord with the, the truth, and it corrects us. It not only points out our errors, but it actually draws us back into conformity. It, it brings us back into line with these truths of, of faith and, and practice. In fact, Paul uses the language of, of training Think about what that language does. When we, when we train, we are becoming equipped. When we, when we train to run a race, we are becoming competent, equipped to, to run a race. When we train to, to play an instrument, we are learning to, to play that instrument. Here we are being trained for godliness. The Word of God does that. It is our training. It is what makes us competent. Previously, where there was only incompetence, previously, where there was only insufficiency, Now, through the power of God's Word, there comes competency. There comes ability. There becomes a new sufficiency to walk in the footsteps of faith. And so it is through the ministry of the Word, it is is through the powerful Word of God that our minds are renewed and that our lives are transformed. And I think that this has obvious implications for us as the people of God. If the Word of God is, in fact, the power of God to to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to, to train us, then what should we do? Well, keep reading into chapter 4. Look at what Paul says. Writing to Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. If the Word is in fact the means by which our minds will be renewed and our lives will be transformed, what must we do? Well, Paul tells Timothy what he must do. He must preach the Word. Now that has obvious implications for me and for for Sam and for the other ruling elders here at 
the church. It, it, it tells us clearly that the, the ministry of the Word must be central to our ministry, that, that we have no real life to offer anyone. We have, we have no good to offer anyone apart from the Word, that, that we serve you by feeding you the Word of God. And it's why our ministry is shaped the way it is here at Trinity. We, we build our ministry around the ministry of the Word because we believe this. We believe that you will become mature disciples of Jesus Christ only through the, the ministry of the Word empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this has implications not only for those who stand up here or for those who, who teach or for those who, who counsel this has implications for all of us. This has implications for you. If Paul's charge to Timothy is to preach the Word, this means that, that your greatest need as a member of the church that Timothy serves is to sit under the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Paul charges Timothy to preach the Word because you need the preaching of the Word. You need the teaching of the Word. You need the ministry of the Word. You, you need it in Sunday morning worship. You, you need it in Sunday school, in small groups, in midweek Bible study. There's, there's, there's not a prescription here for what ministries a church must have. Those are, those are wisdom decisions. Those are decisions of the, of the session as we decide how we are going to minister this Word to you. And of course, we offer more ministries than any one person could possibly participate in. We don't expect you to do everything listed in the bulletin. But we offer those things because we recognize that you need the ministry of the Word. And you ought to be feasting upon it as, as often as possible. It is as this Word more and more dwells in you richly that your mind will be renewed and your life transformed. And so if you have, have been stirred by the vision of discipleship that we have seen over the course of the last few months, if, if you have thought to yourself, that is what I want to be. That is the image to which I want to conform. I want to be a disciple like that. If God has stirred up in you a, a, a desire to become a disciple who has repented of his, his or, or her sins and is now living in a life of worship before God, zealous to, to do the good works which he has prepared for him to do in love for neighbor, then you are to devote yourself to the Word of God, even as the early Christians did that we hear described in the book of Acts. You are to devote yourself to the Word. As, as Paul says in Colossians, you are to let that Word dwell in you richly. You are to, to soak in it. You are to meditate upon it. Yes, you are to grasp it with your mind, with your, with your brain, with your intellect. But you are to let it put down deep roots into your heart. You are to plead with the Spirit that he would remember his promise that this word would not return void. For it is as you believe the words of God and as you submit yourself to his word that your mind will be renewed and your life will be transformed and you will be set free to walk in the footsteps of faith. As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, if you would be a mature disciple, 
Devote yourself to the Word, remembering the promise that we heard at the very beginning of our service this morning. Listen to the words again. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be as it goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You devote yourself to the Word not because you trust yourself to be able to conform your life, but because you believe that the Word comes with the very power of God. And it, it is able to create in you new light. Even as God said, let there be light. And there was light in the very beginning. And because God's Word always accomplishes its purpose in this way, because it never returns void, and because the one who receives it will be made new, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together.